0: Welcome back to Loose Ends, The Singh Family Tragedy. This is episode 15, Crime Scene Forensics. My name is Graham Crowley. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast has been created specifically for an adult audience, so listener discretion is advised. The thoughts and opinions in this podcast are mine. I reflected at length on Sam DiCarlo's comments in episode 14. Actually, his comments gave me heart. I was beginning to doubt myself. It wasn't just me finding problems with this case. These problems have been around since day one. Sam DiCarlo knew it. Jeff Johnson found them. I found them. I felt there was a need to deconstruct some of Sam's comments and enlarge on them. On the time of death, Sam had this to say.
1: They could have been killed two hours before or four hours before, five hours before. Or they could have... I don't think they were killed a couple of days before.
0: As you have heard, it was a Crown case that death occurred somewhere between 11pm on the Sunday night and 7am on the Monday morning. That is just the Crown position. It is not fact. And it does not address the Sunday night caller, who was never identified and in the eyes of Sam De Carlo, was never properly investigated. I have long noted the trial by media phenomenon that occurred in this case. This is not uncommon. It happens frequently. The Azaria Chamberlain case is a spectacular example. By the time a matter gets to trial, depending on the amount of media exposure, a portion of the population has already made up its mind as to the guilt or innocence of the accused. Barristers I know have mentioned things to me over the years, one of which has always stuck with me. The weaker the Crown case, the more leaks to the media. And there were certainly many media leaks in this case. The old adage applied, if you read it in the Courier-Mail or saw it on the Channel 7 News, it must be true. And just as pretty much everyone in Australia thought Seeker was guilty, it seemed the local law firms were reluctant to be associated with such a high-profile murder where seemingly conviction was assured. De Carlo nailed it when he said this.
1: Well, my involvement came about because essentially, um, I suppose without denigrating myself, it was very hard for them to get any lawyers that were interested in doing the case. The police manipulated the media. You recall that the media, whenever they did a raid or whenever they were going to pull Max over, the media were always there. And they would always put on a show for the media, putting him in handcuffs. So if they did a raid at 6 o'clock in the morning, the media were there.
0: From reading the file, I was of the opinion Max Seeker was the main and only suspect from the day the murders were discovered. I have said as much. Jeff Johnson felt the same way. This was Sam DiCarlo's reply when I asked him his opinion of when Max Seeker became the main suspect. It happened almost immediately. Police witnesses denied this was the case, even under oath in the witness box. The bottom line, of course, is that if detectives have blinkers on, or tunnel vision if you prefer, the investigation is terminally compromised. We will never know, for instance, what evidence was discarded because it did not fit the Crown case, or was just plain ignored. The evidence of Lisa L, the next-door neighbour, immediately comes to mind. There are other examples, but I think I've made the point. Sam claimed detectives had a holiday when they went to Fiji to conduct investigations.
1: And basically, in my view, Zitney had a holiday in Fiji. Again, he only looked for inculpatory evidence. He didn't look for exculpatory evidence.
0: Coincidentally, the Fijian investigations, or lack of them, was a subject that I have been wanting to raise for some time on the podcast. As far back as episode 6, actually. However, there has been so much going on in this podcast... I just haven't got to it, what I call significant ongoing discovery. So the Fijian investigations fiasco kept getting pushed to one side. But it's timely that I raise the matter now. In May 2003, a detective was tasked with reviewing the evidence to that time to determine what investigations need to be conducted in Fiji as part of Operation Bravo Settler. To determine whether revenge was a possible motive for the murders. You may recall V.J. sold a previous business to a relative for $750,000. The business failed not long afterwards. The relative had not paid the full purchase price. V.J. put the relative into bankruptcy to obtain the balance of the funds. There were some very unhappy relatives as a result of that. Six areas of investigation were identified with specific instructions of what was required in each area, who to interview and what was expected would be obtained from the witnesses. From reading the report and recommendations, it was apparent that a considerable number of people needed to be interviewed and statements obtained. I estimate somewhere between 20 and 30 potential witnesses bank managers, accountants and owners of a number of businesses in Suva. Detectives flew to Fiji in November 2003. By the end of their visit, the detectives had interviewed a number of witnesses, but none of the witnesses from the six areas of investigation mentioned above. And it was not a case that the six matters were investigated and no evidence gathered. It was the case that no witnesses were interviewed. Witnesses that were interviewed told of the relationship between VJ and Shirley, and VJ and Karen, and their own and others' involvement or otherwise in making telephone threats to VJ back in Australia. The one recommendation acted on was to interview the accountant acting on behalf of VJ's Fiji and Company. The instructing report actually named the accountant required to be interviewed. But he was not interviewed. A young 20-year-old male employee, I shall call Jasphere, was interviewed. Jasvere provided his occupation as an accountant, but his duties suggested he was more likely an accounts clerk. These are Jasphere's words, but not his voice.
2: As an accountant, my duties are to make the payments to the creditors and collect from the debtors. I also prepare bankings and balancing of the cash books.
0: Police took a nine-page statement from Jasveer. Apart from the above two lines detailing his duties in the business, there were no other comments of any kind in respect of the business dealings of VJ or the company in his statement. I have read the written recommendations the detective made in relation to interviewing the accountant and what should be obtained. I can say the interview with Jasveer did not meet the expectations required by the reviewing detective. In fact, they fell way short. The balance of the nine-page statement would be better described as gossip. The statement detailed comments regarding Max Seeker, Shirley Singh, Nilma Singh, Vijay Singh and Vijay's then current girlfriend, Karen. The statement also contained a detailed section on Jazvier's relationship with Nilma. Once again, these are Jazvier's words, but not his voice.
2: At about 11.45pm on the same night, Nilma and Natish returned to the nightclub. Whilst in the nightclub, Everyone in our group drank alcohol, except for myself, as I don't drink. I danced with all the females in my group, and particularly with Nilma. I began to admire her as she was attractive. At about 3am, we returned home and I spent the night at Shirley's house. We have been clubbing on a number of occasions, even when Shirley was at home in Fiji. In early November 2002, Shirley left for Brisbane and Neelma stayed behind. After Shirley's departure on a Saturday, we went to Purple Haze nightclub with Neelma and Natish. We had soft drinks but no alcohol to drink as it was our Hindu festival, Diwali. We returned home at about 2am in the morning. We chatted for a while and then went to sleep in our own bedroom. An hour later, Natish went off to sleep and Nilma asked me to come into her bedroom. I went into Nilma's bedroom with her and we chatted for a while and we ended up having sex for the first time. I was in love with her and I told this. Nilma also told me that she loved me. From this time onwards, I had sexual relationship with her. I had often made love to her at her home.
0: Jasveer's statement also detailed telephone interaction between himself and Max Seeker, which I have previously reported on. Jasveer's statement was of no value at all unless you were focused on showing Max Seeker was obsessed with Neuma, Which of course was a valid aspect of the investigation but certainly not the only aspect. Or perhaps it was. Incidentally... Jasphere gave evidence at the trial in 2012. Sam De Carlo's description as a holiday may have some accuracy to it. Sam De Carlo's comments regarding Andrea B. also causes me much concern.
1: Yes, my view is this. She was a glowing example of a perfect patient of multiple personalities and personal issues for a psychiatrist. She was truly mentally unwell. I have no faith in her evidence whatsoever.
0: I have previously mentioned this, but I believe it is worthy of repeating. To the end of 2007, detectives had been in constant contact with the DPP, requesting approval to charge Max Seeker. The DPP declined, citing insufficient evidence to support a conviction. Once Andrea B's statement was obtained, The arrest of Max Seeker was approved. Without her evidence, the police did not have enough to charge Seeker. Her evidence has been discredited. The DPP knew she was dodgy from the get-go. Warning bells would have been going off everywhere, but they pushed on. Of course, by then it was too late. Seeker had been arrested and committed for trial. They could not back down from their position. Imagine the media storm if they had decided not to prosecute. Much easier to box on, actually. I am reminded of the Shandy Blackburn murder I mentioned in the last episode. A weak circumstantial case against the ex-partner, John Peros. They are not my words, they are the comments made by the trial judge. I have resisted the urge to message Mackay detectives to get Andrea B on the team. I realise that comment is in poor taste, but what I can say is that using a witness like Andrea B, fully aware of her mental health issues, with her less incredible evidence in a triple murder case, I believe is extremely poor taste. Imagine for a moment, if you will, that the DPP had decided not to use Andrea B's evidence. Would it be the case that today, in 2022, the Singh triple murder case would still be unsolved? But I can assure you the police executive and the Queensland government would never allow that to happen. And just going back to Sam DiCarlo's comments... The last comment I'd like to make is the long delay in finding the alleged murder weapon, the garden fork. 13 days delay, actually, found in the house, in the crime scene, and not by scenes of crime officers, by the arresting officer.
1: This, much like the pitchfork, being found some 10 or 12 days after the event, by a non expert, such as Zitney who's close to the case, is another feature that will always astound me.
0: This topic has occupied a lot of my discussions with Jeff Johnson. We are left with so many questions. On the evidence, after Max Seeker committed the murders, he made no attempt to clean up the crime scene. At all. The first floor, anyway. That area of the house resembled your worst horror movie. Think Charnel House. At least four employees later separated from the Queensland Police Service and specifically cited that crime scene in their claims to workers' compensation. Yet a one square metre of tiles was mopped with bleach downstairs. I'm sure you are aware that bleach destroys DNA. The Crown Prosecutor said this in his opening address to the jury. These are his words, but not his voice.
2: There are indicators that distinct effort had been made inside areas of that house to clean away any biological or other forensic trace of who the killer was.
0: Areas of that house to clean away any biological or other forensic trace of who the killer was. Why would Max Seeker need to do that? The only valid conclusion was to clean away blood or some other forensic material. Yet two days later, Seeker was examined by police. No scratches, cuts or other injuries were found on his body. At some point, Max Seeker then carried the garden fork back to where he had obtained it, in the garage behind the barbecue, near the garage roller door. He walked the full length of the Pajero, but didn't just dump the fork or throw it down. The fork was found leaning upright against the wall, alongside other garden implements including a rake and a weed sprayer. Crime scene photos show this. The photos clearly show no blood immediately under the garden fork prongs, and there was no blood trail from the first floor, down the stairs and through the garage. One crime scene photo shows a barbecue with the garden fork neatly behind it. And a forensic search found no blood on the carpet. I have posted the photo on the Facebook page, as it is so bizarre. Nonsensical. Amazing, really. What is the real story with the garden fork? I am not sure. Was it even the murder weapon? Yes, the DNA from all three victims was found on it which in itself was quite astonishing. That DNA from all three victims would be found in the one place at the one time. The forensic pathologist was shown four possible murder weapons, the garden fork, the heavy metal trident from the upstairs prayer room, a heavy wooden spatula found in the bathroom, and a lighter long wooden spoon just so you understand what happens in cases like this. You may wonder why police only showed the pathologist four possible weapons. That is because that is all they could find to connect to this case. The pathologist agreed if they would produced more potential murder weapons, he could have confirmed whether they possibly caused the injuries or not. And this is where it gets complicated. All three victims suffered head injuries, significant head injuries, but not the same head injuries. The pathologist said this in evidence. He favoured the garden fork to be responsible for Neoma's injuries. He favoured the heavy wooden spatula to be responsible for the injuries to canal and city. As an alternative, the metal trident could have inflicted the injuries to Canal and City if used on its side. He stated the light timber spoon would not have caused any of the injuries. And it gets more confusing. The garden fork was the only weapon found with DNA on it. The trident was not tested for DNA, so I guess we will never know if it was a weapon used in the attacks or not. Neoma had bruising to her nose not related to a wound or an injury and Cannell had a swollen bottom lip which was most likely caused by a blow such as a punch or a slap. How is it possible to reconcile those findings with the Crown case? What bothers me the most with all of this is that Sam to Carlo engaged to defend the accused at trial and with 40 years combined police and legal experience found multiple problems with the evidence. Jeff Johnson, with over 50 years legal experience, no connection to anyone involved in the case, working pro bono, reviewed the case and identified multiple problems with the evidence. I then came along with over 40 years' investigative experience, and with no actual goal other than tell the story, also found significant problems with the evidence. And I ask myself, didn't the police see these problems? Were they concerned with them? Why didn't they address them? And which is why I have tried to speak with both lead investigators of the case to no avail, to have them tell me the police side of the story. So I say this, if you are a serving or retired Queensland police officer, if you were involved in Operation Bravo Settler or Operation Alpha Karma, and if you would like to discuss the evidence in either case, I would be really keen to hear from you. Anonymity is assured if that is your desire. Which brings me to crime scene forensics. When I decided to review the DNA evidence, I thought I'd just cover that aspect. But DNA is only one part of forensic evidence and other sciences which came into play in this investigation. To cover the forensics properly, I need to cover all the forensic evidence in this case. Not that there is a lot. And none of it implicated Max Seeker in the murders. Simply put, forensic science is the application of science to criminal investigations. It can and does include medicine, pathology, odontology, biology, chemistry and engineering. A brief history. Fingerprints were first used... In 600 AD. By 1880, it was determined fingerprints were unique, and by 1892, fingerprint identification was used in crime. In 1901, investigations were commenced into blood markers, and by 1923, crime labs were being built. In 1987, DNA was being used to identify and convict offenders. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can
1: get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: DNA is a substance which is contained within our cells. It contains the genetic information that essentially determines who we are and what we are. To my knowledge, there has been no new scientific discovery since that time, but there has been significant refining of the various sciences. Today, police use all of the above sciences in their fight on crime. In the Singh murder investigations, police utilise fingerprint comparison DNA Comparison, Footprint Comparison and Ear Face Comparison, as well as the Pathology and Associated Sciences involved in the post-mortem examinations of the victims. I could dedicate a whole episode to the post-mortem evidence alone. I will summarise it by saying this. The pathologist Dr Alumbi, as you heard, could not give a time of death. Of any of the victims. Police decided on a time of death by other means. Jeff Johnson engaged the services of a specialist forensic pathologist named Johann Duflo to review the post mortem results. In his comprehensive report to Jeff Johnson, Dr. Duflo essentially agreed with the majority of Alumbe's findings. He holds a difference of opinion in relation to some matters. Dr. Duflo is of the opinion Neoma may have died from drowning rather than strangulation. When Cannell's body was removed from the spa, Dr. Alumbe noted a plume of white froth coming from his mouth and nostrils. Photographs clearly show this. Duflo had this to say regarding that observation. These are his words, but not his voice.
1: Cannell had a plume of froth emanating from the nostrils and oral cavity. Quite correctly, Dr Olumby indicates this is seen in some drowning cases, but certainly not in all. An interesting aspect of this plume, which appears not to have been appreciated at the time of the trial, is that research has shown it is most uncommon for such a plume to be apparent more than 24 hours after death. Indeed, in the recent study by Raynan et al., they observed external foam in 27.7% of cases where the interval between death and first examination of the body was less than 24 hours, and it was found in none of their cases where the time interval exceeded 24 hours. The authors of that study conclude that the presence of external foam may be used as an additional indicator when estimating the post-mortem time period.
0: That is a significant statement. If accurate, it changes the time of death completely. And I say if accurate because I expect the Crown would challenge it. That would place time of death no earlier than around 7pm on Monday 21 April 2003. There were a number of witnesses who gave evidence of things they heard and saw and as late as 11pm that Monday night. There was the painter who was 100% sure he saw City at about 9am that Monday morning outside the front of her house. You may recall that four witnesses at the rear of the Singh house heard a piercing female scream around 8pm that night, followed by gunshots. As I said, I could devote an entire episode solely to the post-mortem evidence. I have briefly mentioned the evidence of the feet impressions on the stairs from the ground to the first floor in a previous episode. That evidence was such a significant part of the Crown case that I believe it requires further sunshine on it. In view of the Bond University findings, I'll discuss that evidence further in a later episode. When Jeff Johnson started reviewing this case in 2018, he saw a need to review the DNA evidence. To that end, he obtained instructions from Max Seeker to have the DNA evidence retested. You should be aware that when you start reviewing a case, as Jeff Johnson did, you do not know what you will find. You may find evidence exonerating the accused and or you may find evidence implicating the accused. As I dug deeper into the case... I face the exact same scenario. You just do not know what will turn up next. In fact, I find myself still going down rabbit holes. As I've said, when I started this journey, I thought I was just telling a story. Now I'm looking for the truth. And I'm pretty sure I haven't found it yet. Or at least all of it. Jeff Johnson tells me that Max Seeker did not hesitate in agreeing to have the DNA retested. Max encouraged Jeff to do whatever was necessary to prove his innocence. DNA testing does not come cheap. Jeff Johnson approached Carlo and Anna Maria Seeker and told them what he wanted to do. They agreed. They stated they would need to sell their house to fund the testing, but they would do that. It was at that point the wheels fell off the Team Seeker bus. Jeff had obtained the services of a duly qualified scientist who had agreed to review the forensic results. Jeff needed to obtain the DNA reports and documents from Queensland Health. You will recall I have previously mentioned the Crown Prosecutor had an obligation to be fair in his dealings in the prosecution of the case, which he clearly wasn't, as far as Andrea B and the Sunday night witnesses were concerned at least. The Department of Health has an obligation to also be fair in dealings with the now convicted MAC seeker. It actually goes further than that. Section 590 AD of the Queensland Criminal Code requires ongoing disclosure of exculpatory matters until the accused person dies. On 10 January 2019, and again on 4 February 2019, Jeff Johnson emailed Queensland Health requesting DNA documents. He explained his role, his instructions, what he required and what his intentions were. That was to have the DNA results independently analysed. The emails contained the material he was seeking from Queensland Health. Follow-up emails were sent to Queensland Health on 11 March, 22 March and 29 March 2019. The last email Jeff Johnson received from Queensland Health was on 29 March 2019, which contained the following The organisation is seeking legal advice regarding your request. Once legal advice has been provided, we will be able to appropriately respond to your request. As at 2022, Jeff Johnson is still awaiting a reply. He was in correspondence with Queensland Health as recently as January 2021. I note that in the Shandy Blackburn murder investigation, all DNA records were handed to journalist Hedley Thomas in 2021 to obtain independent analysis. But it should be noted, in that case, the offender is outstanding. Police and Queensland Health appear happy to bend over to assist. It does really smack of double standards. Given the disturbing evidence Hedley Thomas found regarding DNA testing by Queensland Health it is likely Queensland Health will not be so keen to get on board the independent investigators bandwagon again any time soon. If indeed the documents found their way to Hedley via Queensland Health more likely they came from Queensland Police who are known to leak like a sieve when it suits their purpose. So in terms of the DNA in relation to the Sing murders, I cannot tell you what a review of the DNA evidence found, because one has not occurred, but I can give you an idea of the original results. From reviewing the file, I determined over 300 specimens, exhibits and swabs were delivered to Queensland Health for testing. Some 73 of all items delivered were not tested for DNA. In around 120 samples, no DNA was found. In over 60 samples, there was insufficient DNA to obtain a profile. And it begs the question what level of testing was conducted on those 60 samples? Sufficient DNA was obtained from 46 samples for identification purposes. The DNAs were full profiles, part profiles, or mixed profiles. One DNA profile found in the crime scene remained unidentified until 2008. And that is a story in itself. The DNA was found on the piece of offcut carpet on which the garden fork was located. And to put that in context, the carpet piece measured approximately the size of the top of an average work desk. Connell and City's DNA was found on that carpet piece. As was the DNA of two friends of Canell. Fast forward three years to 2006. In August 2006, a safe was found dumped in a car park at Nunda. It appeared to be the proceeds of a burglary, but the owner of the safe was never identified and never came forward. Less than one metre away was a tissue with blood on it. For those not familiar with Brisbane geography, this area of Nunda is about 13 kilometres from 20 grass tree close, Bridgman Downs. The tissue was taken possession of and sent for testing to Queensland Health. DNA on that tissue revealed it was identical to the outstanding DNA profile from the Singh house. Eventually, in 2008... A 67-year-old male was identified as being the owner of that DNA profile. He told police he was a bicycle rider and it was possible that he had fallen off his bicycle in the Nunda area and used a tissue to wipe up blood from an injury, although he could not specifically recall doing that. He denied any knowledge of the safe or involvement in it being found in Nunda. The man stated he had been a client of Shirley Singh and had obtained massages from her. There is nothing in the file to suggest the investigators took this line of inquiry any further. It was never determined how his DNA came to be on the carpet offcut. By that time, police were focused well and truly on Max Seeker. Police took well over 100 mouth swabs from persons to obtain DNA for elimination purposes during the investigation. Everyone approached, willingly supplied a mouth swab, except for five people who refused to provide a sample. One who refused was a 72-year-old male. One was a 56-year-old male. Three were adult males from the same Fijian Indian family, relatives of the Singhs. Of the 46 DNA profiles identified, we can say this. Max Seeker's DNA was found on three cigarette butts, A prayer sheet printed 13 April 2003 on the bedhead of Nielma's bed and on a TV and DVD he installed in the master bedroom. The cigarette butts were found in the garage or outside the house. In close proximity were a number of cigarette butts with Nielma Singh's DNA on it. It was apparently common knowledge Nielma and Max used to smoke in the garage and outside. Smoking was not allowed in the house as was the wearing of shoes or eating and drinking which I have previously covered. Three of the samples were identified belonging to each of the victims found on the garden fork. The victim's DNA was found in other locations also. The balance of the DNA profiles were eliminated as involved in the crime. I have previously mentioned Lockhart's principle of exchange. The offender leaves something behind and take something away. On the Crown case, Seeker left behind several foot impressions, which I will deal with in a later episode. But it seems Max Seeker did not take anything away from the crime scene. If he did, it was never found. Now, do the DNA results support the Crown scenario of how the murders played out? In 2005, Queensland Police received DNA results from the crime scene. Those DNA results placed Neilma in her bedroom, Canal in his bedroom, and Siddy in the master bedroom. By 2012, when the trial started, the Crown had nine years to work out the crime scenario. Several scenarios were suggested, but this is the way they believe the murders occurred. Max arrived after 11 pm on the Sunday night and a struggle argument occurred between him and Nelma downstairs. He strangled her. Max then went upstairs and took a doona from Nilma's room and returned downstairs, where he wrapped her in it. At this point, he went into the laundry and obtained the bleach which was found on the doona, on tiles and on the stairs. He carried Neilma up the stairs to her bedroom. Bleach transferred to his socked feet which then transferred to the carpet on the stairs, leaving impressions. One impression was observed by police, and the carpet was noted to be lighter in colour than the surrounding carpet. Max then went to the garage, obtained the garden fork, and returned upstairs where he bludgeoned Cannell, Siddy, and Nealmer, but the order he did that in is not clear. It appears Cannell was murdered in his bed. His blood was found in the bed. Sidi was similarly murdered in the master bedroom. Her blood was found in the bed. A quantity of Neoma's blood was found on the floor next to her bed. She may have been strangled downstairs, but she was apparently bludgeoned in her bedroom while still alive. In that period before death, according to the pathologist, Maxika then placed the bodies in the spa. Sidi was carried to the spa. Neilma and Canel were placed in dooners and dragged, leaving a blood trail from respective bedrooms through to the master bedroom, where the trails disappeared. At some point, Max Seeker returned the garden fork to the garage. Now, do the DNA results support that scenario or any other similar scenario? Starting downstairs. Hair was found in three separate areas... The samples were not suitable for lab testing, but on the balance of probability, they belonged to Nielma. Supposedly, Canal and City slept blissfully through the ruckus occurring downstairs. Nielma's blood was found on the bleach bottle. How does that happen if she had been strangled? And if she was strangled, why was there a need to pour bleach over her and the doona? Perhaps she was bashed first and then strangled but that is not consistent with the pathologist's findings. He determined she was strangled first and bludgeoned while still alive. And if she was bashed first, why was there not more blood found there, on the carpet, on both the ground floor and first floor, and on the stairs? Because she was wrapped in the doona, perhaps? Her blood was found on the wall near the stair balustrade. How did that happen if she was wrapped in the doona? And if there was a leak why wasn't her blood found on the stairs or on the carpet? 20 to 30 strands of her hair pulled out of her scalp were found in the upstairs communal living area. A further clump of her hair of more than five strands was found close by but separate in the upstairs communal living area. How and when did that happen? Whether she was strangled or bludgeoned downstairs, the hair is evidence she resisted or was trying to run and was forcibly restrained, and that she was therefore conscious, consistent with her being bashed and strangled upstairs. So what was the business with the bleach downstairs? Neilma had bruises on both forearms, caused at or near the time of death, as if she was restrained. How did Max Seeker strangle her and restrain her at the same time? And if he bashed her... Why the need to restrain her and how did he do that whilst bashing her? How did she receive the injury to the nose? Cannell's blood was found on the light switch in his bedroom. It was determined it was probably transference. In other words, his blood transferred to someone or something and that item then transferred the blood to the light switch. Cannell's blood was found in the master bedroom. On the Crown argument, he was murdered in his bed whilst asleep. So how did his blood find its way into the master bedroom? How and when did he receive his punch to the mouth? Neilma's blood was found on both sides of the door to the master bedroom. That is, on the inside and outside of the door. The report made no mention of transference. How does that happen if she had been strangled or bludgeoned in her room? City's DNA was found under Cannell's fingernails. How did that get there? I simply cannot resolve the DNA results with any crown scenario of how the murders played out. There are just so many gaps. And that does not take into account other evidence which questions the police theory of events. Neilma's clothing being found in three separate locations. Blood on VJ Sandals in Neilma's room. The yellow cup in Neilma's room, which incidentally was never sent for DNA testing. The list goes on. In relation to the ear facial impressions, three impressions were found by scientific officers. There was an ear slash facial impression on the door from the garage to the downstairs living area. The second and third impressions were found on the door to Neilma's bedroom as if someone placed their ear against the door to hear if there was any noise coming from the other side. The owner of those impressions was never identified. Max Seeker was eliminated as making the impressions. There is really nothing more I can say about the impressions other than of all the friends, neighbours and family interviewed, no one was identified as making those impressions. And remember... Police obtained over 1,100 statements from witnesses. No one admitted to making those impressions. I have previously reported on the massive fingerprint examinations conducted during this murder investigation. Over 352 separate fingerprint impressions were found at various crime scenes associated with this investigation. Over 300 police and civilians had their fingerprints examined and eliminated as part of the investigation. After all that, what remained? So much like the DNA, to this day, you have people's
1: prints there that have never been identified, yet they are able to be identified, save and except for the fact that those person's prints don't exist in the database.
0: Latent impressions were found but never identified on the outside front door, an inside window in the downstairs formal area, on a shower gel bottle, and on the inside of the window in Cannell's room. Five other latent impressions are also outstanding, but they were not suitable to load onto AFIS, the Automated Fingerprint Identification System. Efforts to identify the owners, including fingerprint experts flying to Fiji, and taking prints from a number of individuals in that country. Perhaps in one year, ten years, or twenty years, one or more of those prints will pop up on the system. What happens then? If that were to occur, I would expect the Queensland Police would act in accordance of Section 590 AD of the Queensland Criminal Code. I recently emailed Hedley Thomas from the Australian newspaper. Requesting an interview to compare the treatment he received from Queensland Health as opposed to the treatment Jeff Johnson received from Queensland Health. I'll bring you my interview with Headley in the next episode. That's it for Crime Scene Forensics. Thank you for joining me in this latest episode of Loose Ends. Jeff Johnson informs me that he is continuing with his efforts to obtain the records from Queensland Health to undertake an independent review of the DNA results. In the event he is successful, a further episode on the DNA results could well be required. In the interim, I am continuing inquiries in other areas of this case. If you follow the podcast, you will be advised when a further episode is released. Please rate and review the podcast. It does help spread the story. If you like the podcast, recommend it to others. If you have questions, information or feedback, you can contact me via the following. The Facebook page is Loose Ends, the Sing Family Tragedy. My email address is looseends2003 at outlook.com. This podcast was made possible with the grateful assistance of the ACAST Creator Network. Music Before I Go by RKVC. You'll find all my contact details in the show notes at the end of each episode. Thanks for listening.